Okay, good morning, good afternoon. You're all very welcome to today, Saturday, the 3rd of July, Big Book Study. And welcome to the Scottsdale Big Book Study, where we will study the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Today is Saturday, the 3rd of July, 3rd of June, 2023. And my name is Ann, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from County Mead in Ireland, and I'm your host today. And our co-hosts are Tom. Dolly and Tanya G and Sue L will be doing question and answers. If you have any questions during the meeting, please contact myself or any of the co-hosts by private message in the chat function. Please note that the speaker Harlan G will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the question and answer sessions which follows will not be recorded. We will post the link to the previous week's recording in the chat function. The Tradition 7 link will also be put in the chat and just a reminder that the money goes towards our Zoom costs, uploading of our um, recordings, and also we send contributions to World Service and WSO. We ask if you can please make sure to keep your microphone on mute at all times during today's study, and also please turn off your video if you are exercising, eating, if you need to step away from your screen for any reason. I will now hand you over to Harlan G. Thanks, Harlan. Thank you, Audrey. Thank you very, very much. I'm so glad to be here. And as I've said many, many times, I hope it's as absolutely stunning where you are, whether you're listening on podcasts, whether you're listening live. I hope it's as absolutely stunning wherever you are as it is here in Scottsdale today. It is just absolutely a Chamber of Commerce day. Somebody's unmuted. Somebody's unmuted. Um, and I'm very glad to be here. We are talking about step 12. We're talking about sponsorship and we are going to be in the chapter working with others. And when we get started on the reading, we're going to be on page 90 where it says sometimes it is wise to go, what wise to wait. Sometimes it is wise to wait. So that's where we're going to start when we eventually land. But the bottom line is, is we're talking about sponsorship. And one of the things that comes up all the time, it comes up in question and answers. It comes up in so many of the discussions that center around recovery here in OA. And that is, why do we want to work the steps fast? Why do we want to get through them in a, as short a period of time as we possibly can? Because so many sponsors are given to protracting that process out and making it into like a home study course. And what happens is it becomes detrimental because on page 89 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it clearly says, and I'm going to read rather than remember, it says, Practical experience shows that nothing will so much as ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. So given that that's a wonderful guarantee, we want to get people sponsoring as quickly as we can. And remembering that when you're sponsoring someone, we have the rest of our lives we have the rest of our lives to study history of it and study all these various different aspects of recovery, that we're not going to learn this uh, process of recovery as well by listening as we will by teaching. Clancy Immeslin teaches us that we don't learn the program by absorbing spiritual information. We learn the program by transmitting spiritual information. So in order to transmit that spiritual information, you have to be at step 12. You have to be able to work with other people. So that's one of the reasons why we want to get people through. And of course, the other big reason being how long can you hold your breath underwater? Because until you get to you know, 10, 11, and 12, essentially what you're doing is you're just basically dieting with group support. You have to go through the process as quickly as you possibly can. And so we find ourselves today on page 90, but we want to always remember these things. And we also want to, before we get started, I want to sort of reiterate Ebby's legacy. Ebby leaves us with a legacy. He leaves us with an inheritance. 
And Ebby's inheritance to the people of OA, AA, whatever uh, program you want to work, Ebby leaves us with a beautiful gift. And the gift that he gives us is on page 14 when he inspires Bill to say, my friend had emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles in all my affairs. That's part of step 12. Step 12 is a definite three-part step. The first part being uh, having had a spiritual awakening. So when should you be when should you be sponsoring? You should be sponsoring when you've had a spiritual awakening. And that usually comes around the ninth step, 10th step. That's when it will usually happen. So it says, my friend had emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles in all my affairs. Particularly, was it imperative? What does imperative mean? It means important beyond all else. Important beyond all else. What's important beyond all else? To work with others as he had worked with me. So he's giving you the instruction manual on how to expand and improve your spiritual life. You work with others as he had worked with me. This is Bill talking, but he's talking about what Ebby teaches him. He's talking about the things that Ebby imparted on him back in November and December of 1934. He gives it this uh, he gives us this, this this paragraph. He says, faith without works was dead, he said. And how appallingly true for the alcoholic. For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life. Now you may ask, how do I perfect and enlarge my spiritual life? How do I do it? Well, he's going to answer it through work and self-sacrifice for others. So what's he talking about? He's talking about sponsorship, isn't he? He's reiterating. And when the big book wants to teach me something, it almost never teaches it to me once. It teaches it to me over and over and over again because my confusion is equal to what my ego does not want me to see. And my ego does not want me to work with other people because my ego says, wait a minute, who's going to take care of me? I need to be taken care of. I don't need to be taking care of someone else. And when you sponsor, you're really not taking care of anyone. You're just imparting your knowledge onto them as best you can. And the rest is really up to God and them. Some of them are going to recover and some of them are not going to recover. But we need to keep in mind always, we are not in the results business. Let's continue and finish this paragraph. It says, he could not, if, if he doesn't work with others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. And many of us have low spots that we are going to go through. All of us are terminally human beings. And no matter how evolved my recovery gets or your recovery gets, we will never rise above the level of a human being. And as a human being, people are going to hurt us. Things are going to hurt us. Situations are going to hurt us. And so we are going to be in a situation where we are going to be hurt or disappointed or scared or angry or whatever that may be. So if we don't work with others, we have no viable method with which to overcome these situations. We just don't. It says, if he did not work, he would surely drink again. So I hear some of you saying, well, I'm scared to sponsor. And as my friend Kim G in New Jersey says, gosh, you better be scared not to. What you're really saying when you say you're scared to sponsor is you're scared of not being the perfect sponsor. You're scared of not being the sponsor that gets everybody recovered like you were the Pied Piper of Hamlin leading the rats out of London. It's not going to happen. Most of the people that I have sponsored over the last half, almost half century are people that are in the food today. Most of them are people that are in this disease, but that doesn't reflect on me. Let's remember a famous story. And the famous story is about Bill and Lois. And Bill comes home one day and he says to Lois, damn it, Lois, 
I got a message that I thought was from God and I'm supposed to sober up drunks. I'm supposed to sober up people that are drunk and nobody's getting sober. And Lois was getting ready for the Tuesday night Oxford group meeting. And she turned to Bill as she was getting herself ready to go. And she said, but you're staying sober. And later, years later, Clancy Immeslin said to her, you know, Lois, you changed the course of the world when you said that to him, because if you didn't say that to him, he might have stopped trying to sober up drunks. He And Clancy said to Lois, Lois, how did you ever think to say something so profound? And she said to Clancy, you know, Clancy, it just seemed like the perfect thing to say because it was so obvious that he was staying sober. So what was the problem? And Bill continued to work with others and the rest is history. And it says here, if he did not work, he would surely drink again. If he drank, he would surely die. Then faith would be dead indeed. With us, it is just like that. So we have, I'm going to go back to page 90. We have many, many references through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that show us that when all other measures fail, work with another alcoholic will save the day. We also see on page 77, it says, our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. So how can I be of maximum service to God? By sponsoring. Yes, Picking someone up for a meeting is very good service. And Sue and Lauren and Audrey and the various people that put this together, Maria, I don't think Maria is here, but uh, all the people that work very hard to put this meeting together are vital in, in carrying the message, but that's not a substitute for sponsorship. That's not some substitute for working one-on-one -on -one with others. The purest form of service that we have, the purest form of service that we have is sponsoring someone in OA or any program to get them from a place of disease to a place of recovery. And that is the purest form of service that we do have. And so for us, we are called upon to do the best we can with what we have. And that is to pass to people who are sick and suffering the life-giving message that we have been given. Now, obviously, you can't pass on what you don't have. So you have to be free of the food. You have to know that if you're still in the food or you know whatever that may be, no. It clearly says having had a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps, um, we, we um, tried to carry this message. What is this message? Is it my message? God, I hope not. Because if you're going to try to recover on my message, you're doomed. The message is the message of the big book. And it's never been anything else but the message of the big book. The message of the big book is the message of a roadmap between where you are and where the recovery is. And that's what it is. We're not healers. We're not medical people. We're not therapists. We're not marriage counselors, financial advisors. All we are here to do is to tell people our hope, strength, and experience. And that's about as much as we can possibly do. Beyond that, we're just not qualified to do anything. So it's very, very important that I talk to these people and I talk to my sponsor every day. I am not one of these people who believes that sponsorship should be once a week or two, three times a week. We wake up sick, compulsive overeaters every single day. And my ego needs to be leveled every single day. And so by calling my sponsor and having my sponsees call me every day, it lowers the ego and it gets me out of self. For the few minutes that I spend talking to my sponsees, I am not able to think about poor Harlan, poor me. Oh my God. You know, in AA, they have an expression, poor me, poor me, poor me a drink. 
pour me, pour me, pour me, pour me a drink. And Clancy Emerson said to us many times, he says, when one alcoholic who is recovered speaks to another alcoholics so that the second alcoholics feelings of differences and feelings of uniqueness begin to dissipate. And he begins to take action after action, after action that he does not yet really believe in. That is the point where recovery can take place. So what you're affecting is you are a guide. You are a guide. That's what we are as sponsors. We're guides. We're not in the results business. Nothing is reflected back on us. Nobody is keeping score as to how many sponsees you have or how many, uh, you know, how many recover. Nobody is keeping score. So yes, I may not be the perfect sponsor. I'm not the perfect sponsor. I know that. I don't know about you. But what I can tell you is as the imperfect sponsor, I'm doing the best I can. And for the last 24 years, 24 years, I have not found it necessary to compulsively overeat even one time. And so I have my own recovery. And as Bill heard from Lois, Lois said to Bill, but you're staying sober. I have to remember, but I'm staying abstinent. And isn't that what it's all about in the final analysis? So let's go to page 90 and let's start with, sometimes it is wise to wait until he goes on a binge. When we go on a binge, we are a little more vulnerable maybe to recovery because binging doesn't feel very good. We, it just doesn't feel very good. And it may put us in a place where we have been convinced or we are more open to the recovery. The family may object to this, but unless he is in a dangerous physical condition, it is better to risk it. Don't deal with him when he is very drunk, unless he is ugly and the family needs your help. Wait for the end of the spree or at least for a lucid interval then let his family or a friend ask him if he wants to quit for good and if he would go to any extreme to do so. If a person does not want to recover, leave them alone. If they're telling you implicitly, I don't want to do this, then your job is to move on to somebody who does want to do this. You have to remember that in Bill's story, it says, Ebby came to give him the message, dash, if I cared to have it, if somebody is telling you right up front, I don't want this, there's nothing to do but leave them alone. If he says yes, then his attention should be drawn to you as a person who has recovered. Okay, you should be described to him as one of a fellowship who, as part of their own recovery, try to help others and who will be glad to talk to him if he cares to see you. Again, that is that qualifier. If he cares to see you, very, very important. Now, the world has changed a lot since 1939. I don't know any of your families. I don't know your spouse. I don't know your sisters, brothers, whatever that may be. These guys all lived within close proximity to one another with some exceptions. But there was no Zoom and there was no phone meetings and there was no, no internet in those days. So they all lived either in Akron or its surrounding areas, or they lived in New York and its surrounding areas. And that was the world of AA at that time. So to know someone, because when they went to the Oxford group meetings, they brought the entire family, the women, or the non-alcoholics, it's always assumed to be the female, but it's not always the case, as we know from, from uh, you know, different situations. They met in the kitchen and they would prepare coffee and things like that. You know, roles today that have been shattered. We don't, we don't have those kind of roles today or rules today. And the men, the drunks, you know, they would meet in Bill's living room or they'd meet in Henrietta's, uh, not Henrietta, they'd meet in... Uh, the Oxford groups in Akron, where it was, where it was um, T. Henry and Clarice Williams's place. So 
you have roles that are very different than they were at that time. Chances are excellent. I will not know in our lifetime, your spouse, your friends, your parents, your children, I will probably not know them. Uh, the chances that you will know, well, obviously my parents have been dead for a long time. They've been dead since the 1970s and I don't have brothers and sisters. I don't have you know, that kind of immediate family. I just, I don't have it. But the chances that you'll meet my very good friends are extremely remote. It's probably not going to happen. So we'll see, you know, where God takes us. But in most cases, you're going to be dealing electronically or at your meetings with someone that you meet and it's one-on-one. -on -one. The chances of you knowing their family at this point are very, very remote. Let's continue. I'm at the bottom of 90. If he does not want to see you, never force yourself upon him. Once again, many, many times they are telling you, if the person does not want to recover, leave them alone. And tomorrow I'm doing special edition on a vision for you. And you can bet your bottom dollar, because all I'm going to do is about a 15, 10-minute lead, and then I'm gonna, we're going to throw it open for questions and answers, because that's, that's, I guess, where she wants me, is Leah wants me, because I guess I'm most effective that way. I don't know. But one of the questions you can bet your bottom dollar on that is going to come up tomorrow is somebody is going to ask maybe more than one. I have a sister, a brother, an aunt, an uncle, a cousin, a friend, and they're morbidly obese. What do I do? And they're not going to like the answer. The answer is three answers, recover, recover, and recover. There's nothing you can do. Right in my office, you can't see it, but right in my office, there's a wood plaque. And I was up in Colorado in a place called Broomfield, Colorado. And my friend Ginger, she gave me a wooden plaque. You can't see it, but it says recover, recover, recover. And the reason it's right in my office is those words are very vital to remember because I have to stay in my hula hoop. I have to stay in my hula hoop because once somebody else's recovery becomes more important to me than it is to them, now I'm in the alanonic condition. I am in the alanonic condition when someone else's recovery is more important to me than it is to them. I said it twice. I know I said it twice because it's important. I am charged by God to focus on my recovery, St. Francis of Assisi. Now, I'm a Jewish kid from Devon Avenue in Chicago, far north side. But I'm going to quote you a priest, a Jesuit priest. St. Francis of Assisi said, go preach the gospel. And if you must, use words. What does he mean by that? He means be an example of what recovery can do for you. What does your recovery look like? Some of us, as we go about in the world, we're carrying a message of the disease. We're carrying a message that says, if this is what you're doing, I don't want any part of it. And some of us are carrying a message that says, wow, if this program can do that for you, sign me up. Sign me up because I want what you have. So we're going to try as best we can throughout the course of our lives to be that example that says, sign me up. I want what that woman has or that man has or that whatever person has. So we are all carrying a message. But again, listen to the big book. And when it comes up tomorrow, I know some of you, if you hear it, you're going to be laughing, you're going to be smiling. He talked about this yesterday. I'm guaranteeing you somebody or two are going to call me up and say, I have somebody in my life, whether they're relative, friend, whatever, boss, employee, 
What do I do? What do I do? Recover, recover, recover. They won't like the answer, but that's the only answer. You can lead a horse to water, but you cannot make a horse drink. You just can't. Okay, let's continue. Bottom of 90. If he does not want to see you, never force yourself upon him. Neither should the family hysterically plead with him to do anything, nor should they tell him much about you. Again, very, very apropos in the 1930s, 40s, not as apropos today, because it's unlikely you are going to meet with somebody's family. You're just going to probably know the person. You'll hear stories. You know, they'll tell you stories about their wife, their sister, their brother, their husband, whatever it is. But unlikely you'll ever actually meet the person. Let's continue. They should wait for the end of his next drinking bout. You might place this book where he can see it in the interval. Here, no specific rule can be given. The family must decide these things, but urge them not to be over anxious for that might spoil matters. Well, you know, the oldest adage in gambling, dating, and sales. That's gambling, dating, and sales. I'll give you the oldest adage, the old, oldest postulate. Desperate money never wins. Desperate money never wins. When you're dating or you're trying to sell something to somebody or you're gambling and you're desperate, you can rest assured that the results are not going to be what you would like them to be. You have to really understand that this is the same thing. When you are desperate with this person, and you're begging them to see you and begging them to recover. And they are going to head for the hills. This is how we are wired as people. We don't want someone begging us to be their friend or begging us to go out with them or begging us to try a new brand of iron or washing machine or you got to do this. You got to remember that we are sensitive, immature rebels, perfectionistic rebels. We are immature, sensitive, perfectionistic rebels. And as sensitive people and as rebels, the more someone tells us what to do, the further and faster we run away from it. And I can see, I can only see about 20 of you, but I see a lot of heads going, yes, yes, yes. How many times have we been told we got to lose weight or we got to do this or we got to do that and we just don't want to do it, do we? And a lot of times that is that rebellious streak, you know? So we have to be on guard and all that stuff is going back to one word and one word only and that word is ego. Our ego does not want us to be told what to do. Our ego wants to be in control of every situation. And the relationship that we have with food is both horrible and great at the same time. We see the ravages of anorexia, we feel the secretive ravages of bulimia, or we see the ravages of, of the obese condition and the health implications of all those things. And yet we don't wanna change. You know, there's a famous cartoon and I, I used to have a copy of this on an old computer. And, and, and I know that some of you will send it to me because it's on the internet. There's a guy at the front and he's speaking from the dais. How many people here want change? Everybody puts their hand up. Everybody wants change. And then in the second panel, he says, how many of you want to change? Nobody puts their hand up. We want change to just come from some magical force, some, some magical place, you know? And gosh, it just, it doesn't work that way. You know, you'll hear me say this tomorrow. You'll hear me say this today. Remember, whether you're the sponsor or you're the sponsee, as long as we're in this program, as long as we're human, this is going to be a possible. It's going to be a given. If you want different, you have to do different. If you want different, 
you got to do different. I was a very obese child. I was 335 pounds as a senior in high school. I was 500 pounds by the time I was a, a, a sophomore, junior in college. I was about 600 pounds when I graduated college, but I did not want to change. I was so miserable with this weight. I was so emasculated, so devastated, so horribly, horribly treated by this obese condition. I did things to myself here you wouldn't do to your worst enemy. And yet there I was eating, not willing to change anything. So that speaks to the disease. Top of page 91, usually the family, usually the family should not try to tell your story. Again, not as a, apropos today. When possible, avoid meeting a man through his family. A, approach through a doctor or an institution is a better bet. Again, there's HIPAA laws in place today that were not in place in 1939 when the book was published. So no doctor is going to come to you and say, I've got a patient, his name is Joe. I've got a patient, his, her name is Mary, whatever it is. They're alcoholic. I want you to speak to them. That's probably not going to happen. So let's continue. If your man needs hospitalization, he should have it, but not forcibly unless he is violent. You can't force someone to go to a hospital today. Hospitals are not hotels. You can't just say, I need to go in, make me a reservation. The world is a very different place today than it is them. The hospital is not a hotel. Let the doctor, if he will, tell him he has something in the way of a solution. When your man is better, I'm in the middle of 91, the doctor might suggest a visit from you. Maybe. Though you have talked with the family, leave them out of the first discussion. Again, not so much an option today. Under these conditions, your prospect will see he is under no pressure. No pressure is the key. Lay it out. Do not pressure anyone. We are not here to hard sell anyone. He will feel he can deal with you without being nagged by his family. Call on him when he is still jittery. He may be more receptive when depressed. I am more receptive when I am depressed. I am more receptive when things are not going well for me. Uh, when things are going well for me, you can tell me, but you can't tell me much because I'm the cock of the walk. I'm the head shingle on the outhouse. I know everything and everything's going great. Everything's coming up roses and all this daffodils and all this other stuff. But when things are not going so well for me, I'm much more open to your, to your suggestions. See your man alone if possible. I'll just touch on something else too. As long as we're talking about spouses, if my mother told my dad that today was Saturday, he would check his calendar. If my dad told my mom that it's the 3rd of June, my mom would check her calendar. If the information came from the other spouse in the marriage that my parents had, it was automatically suspect. It was automatically garbage. So, so a lot of times, if a wife or a husband or someone very close to you gives you information, a lot of times, just by sheer definition, you're going to you're going to discount it. You're going to you're going to disregard it completely. At first, engage in general conversation. See where the conversation goes. After a while, turn to talk to some phase of drinking. Tell him enough about your drinking habits, symptoms, and experiences to encourage him to speak of himself. If he wishes to talk, let him do so. You will thus get a better idea of how you can, how you ought to proceed. Well, I don't tailor make, I don't tailor make um, recovery for each and every person. I, I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. And that's not what God would have me do. I lay it out and it's up to you to follow it. I lay it out and it is up to you to, to make it so that you do the work necessary. Look, let's face a fact here. We are not talking about anything that is that tough. We are not talking about anything that is that hard. It's just not. So we're talking about instructions that are in a book that was written by guys 
who were alcohol by a guy who was an alcoholic for guys that are alcoholics, people that are alcoholics. We're not talking about you know a, a very very difficult uh, uh, book here. We're not talking about college calculus here. We're talking about how to recover from alcoholism. There's a dictionary if you need one to look up any word you don't understand, and we can answer questions. But we're not talking about anything that's so difficult. Okay, if he is not communicative, give him a sketch of your drinking career up to the time you quit, but say nothing for the moment of how that was accomplished. You're trying to engage his curiosity. And also, you don't want to hit him with the G.O.D. thing right away, because for some people, that's going to be something that they're not going to be too comfortable with. If he is in a serious mood, dwell on the troubles liquor has caused you. Being careful not to moralize or lecture. If his mood is light, tell him numerous stories of your escapades. Get him to tell some of his. I don't really have humorous escapades of my eating. I think this is where drinking and eating are different. And I don't like to contradict anything in the big book, but I don't have humorous stories. Of, yeah, you should have seen me. I was at the buffet that day and Oh boy, they I cleaned out those uh brownies and that pudding and man, you should have seen the look on their face when I cleaned it out. Boy, oh boy. Ha 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 ha. I don't have stories like that. I've never had a story like that. I've never looked back on an eating escapade in my entire life and said, "Man, that was a great night." I think drinking is a little different in that respect. And that is they have a situation where there's more camaraderie, at least at first, by the end, they're usually isolated and drinking alone. But in, in the beginning, drinking is more conviviality. It's more community. It's more, uh, you know, uh, yeah, we're going to meet over at Sam's bar and we're going to get drunk tonight. And man, tonight, and then we we started talking to these girls or these guys or what, a very, very different kind of thing, a very different kind of phenomenon. Drinking is different from eating in that respect. I don't get together with my friends and eat my head off. As a matter of fact, when I'm with my friends, I did try at certain points. Sometimes I was more successful than others. Try to curtail it a bit because I don't want them getting on me. But eating for me was not the same kind of fun. Bottom of 91, when he sees you know all about the drinking game, commence to describe yourself as an alcoholic. Stop right there for just a minute. When he sees that you know about the eating game. I have had many, many horrible things in my life. I don't want to regale tales of all the horrible things here, but I'll just tell you a few that I recognize. And there's something that I would, you keep your finger on page 92. We're going to come back to page 92. But what I would like you to do is I would like you to take a trip with me to page 124 for just a minute, page 124. And if you have a book in front of you and you'll indulge me, I think this will be very enlightening for all of us. And on page 124, it says here in the middle of the page, this painful past, that's the paragraph I'm going to be reading, the one that starts with this painful past may be of infinite value to other families still struggling with their problem. Sorry, still struggling with their problem. We think each family which has been relieved owes something to those who have not and when the occasion requires, each member of it should be only too willing to bring former mistakes, no matter how grievous, out of their hiding places. Showing others who suffer how we were given help is the very thing which makes life seem so worthwhile to us now. Cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have. The key to life and happiness for others with it, you can avert death and misery for them. I'll go back to page 92. I've experienced some things in my life that I know helped other people. I didn't know it at the time. I felt very victimized by life at the time. But I know what it's like to not be able to buy clothing that fits, even in a big and tall store. 
I know what it's like at a young age to not be able to get in and out of a car comfortably. I know what it's like not to be able to go to a sporting event or a movie and fit in the seat. I know what it's like not to be able to wipe your bottom after going to the bathroom because you need a wall to lean against because your obese condition prohibits you from doing that. I know what it's like to miss out on life. I know what it's like to watch the world going by as if you were a spectator and eat your heart out that you can't be part of the parade. I know what it's like to go on your first date with a girl when you're 35 years old. I know what it's like to be a spectacle in public. I know what it's like to have people come up to you and laugh at you in public places. I know what it's like to have people slap your stomach and your ass and ask you when the baby hippo is due. I know what it's like to not be a part of the world that you were born into. And some of you know your hell. Not some of you, all of you know your hell. You didn't come here on a roll. Maybe you never weighed 700 pounds. Maybe you never weighed 300 pounds. Maybe you're bulimic. Maybe you're anorexic. Maybe your weight was relatively normal, but there was some reason, some signal that God sent you that brought you to Overeaters Anonymous. And maybe there was a signal that said, I'm going to come to Harlan in the big book study this Saturday morning and see what he has to say. You didn't come here because things went well for you. You came here because they didn't. And I believe that through that hell of your shame and your embarrassment and your pain, you learned something that you never came here to learn. You learned how to speak and understand the language of the heart. And you have a compassion within you for the suffering that you might not have had had life been different and you not been addicted to food. There is a compassion in you because you have lived in hell. You have lived in the torture of this disease. And so you have a heart 25,000 times bigger than you would have had had you never been affected by this vicious disease. Every fiber of your being wishes to be useful to God and those around you. Some of you are more scared than others to sponsor. Some of you feel very insecure about it and you don't want to do it because you feel like maybe you won't be the perfect sponsor. Well, I'm here to tell you, you won't be. You won't be the perfect sponsor. Very, very, very unlikely are you going to be the perfect sponsor. I'm not the perfect sponsor. I'm not the perfect sponsor. And you probably won't be either. But here's what you can do. You can go in and talk to people that no one else can reach. You can talk to people in circumstances and get through to them, and you can understand and speak the language of the heart that others do not speak. You can save lives because of the unique qualification that you have. You can save someone's life from hell because you have suffered unbelievable, unbelievable disgrace. You have been put through pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization at the hands of an illness you neither wanted nor deserved. And you ask yourself on a thousand different occasions, why me? Why me? Why not you? Why not you? 
God only knows how much time we have left, how much sand is in the hourglass. We don't know. But what I know <clears throat> is that if I just keep doing what I'm doing, I'll be okay. And when I get to the end of my days and I step across that threshold and I see my higher power, I want him to pat me on the back and say, you got off to a pretty crappy start there, H, but you did okay. You finished okay. You did good. And I know you want that too. This is a way with which we can serve God in a way where we are uniquely qualified to do so. You don't have to have a college course in OA or AA history. You don't have to know all about the four impediments. You don't have to have a college course in any of the literature that tells our story and history. You don't even have to know any of it. It's not about what you know. It's not about what you think. It's not about what you feel. It's about what you do. Go out there and give of yourself to those who want it. Let's continue in the time we have left. I'm at the top of 92. Tell them how baffled you were, how you finally learned that you were sick. It's an illness of the mind and an illness of the body. Give him an account of the struggles you made to stop, the diets that you went on, the time you went vegan, the time you went kosher, the time you went gluten-free, the time you went paleo or keto or the time you went and whatever, you were on the beet diet or you were on the, the cabbage soup diet or whatever the hell you did. Show him the mental twist, which leads to the first drink of a spree. We suggest you do this as we have done it in the chapter on alcoholism. In other words, chapter three. If he is alcoholic, he will understand you at once. He will match your mental inconsistencies with some of his own. If they don't understand what you're talking about, they may not be compulsive overeaters. They may not be. Not everybody is one. Not everybody is one. If you are, I'm on 92. If you are satisfied that he is a real alcoholic, begin to dwell on the hopeless feature of the malady. Sometimes people have come up to me and they wanted me to work with them or whatever. I'm not even remotely convinced that they were compulsive overeaters. And I told them so. They don't seem to have the physical allergy and they don't seem to have the mental twist. They are people who reached a certain age, 50s, 60s, whatever it is. And they don't weigh what they did when they were in their 20s and 30s and they're upset about it. That doesn't mean they're compulsive overeaters. It means they're human beings. But this is a self-diagnosing disease. But I have to be convinced you are one of us for me to spend my time. I'm not here to tell you that you're a compulsive overeater. It's not my job. But I have to tell myself you're one so that if, I, if you're asking me to spend my time, to invest my time, I'm not going to spend my time with someone who I am convinced is not a compulsive overeater. My time is wasted. So that's where that comes in. Begin to do, oh, excuse me, show him from your own experience how the queer mental condition surrounding that first drink prevents normal functioning of the willpower. That's why diets don't work because the willpower is amazingly weakened. Page seven of the big book says, where although it remains strong in other areas, the will is, is amazingly weakened when it comes to combating liquor. Your will is amazingly weakened when it comes to combating food because food does something for you that nothing else can do except a spiritual awakening. And that is food will instantly change your perception of reality. That's a lot. That's a lot. Food will instantly change my perception of reality. Dr. Silkworth called that the effect. And if something does that for me, that becomes a very powerful thing. 
That's no lightweight thing. That's a very, very important thing. Food will instantly change my perception of reality. Let's continue. Don't at this stage refer to this book unless he has seen it and wishes to discuss it. And be careful not to brand him as an alcoholic. I don't tell people you're a compulsive overeater. Let him draw his own conclusion. If he sticks to the idea that he can still control his drinking, tell him that possibly he can if he is not too alcoholic. But insist if he is severely afflicted, there may be little chance he can recover by himself. I think there's no chance you can recover by yourself if you are a compulsive overeater. No chance. Zero. Continue to speak of alcoholism as an, as an illness, a fatal malady. Talk about the conditions of body and mind, allergy and twist, which accompany it. Keep the, his attention focused mainly on your personal experience. Don't give him a bunch of crap about the allergy and the twist. You know, talk to him or her, her about you, the way you think, the way you eat. That's what's important. Keep his attention focused mainly on your personal experience. Explain that many are doomed who never realize their predicament. Doctors are rightly loath to tell alcoholic patients the whole story unless it will serve some good purpose. But you may talk to him about the hopelessness of alcoholism because you offer a solution. You see, every other person that ever spoke to me about my weight had no solution other than stick on a diet. The doctor would always give my mother a diet. Why are all the diets pink? Do you ever notice that? When, when I, I was born in the 50s, but I'm a product of the 60s. Whenever you got a diet from the doctor, it was always pink. Why is it assumed that all the sufferers of this disease are female? I could never figure that out. I think that it is a disease that affects all genders equally. It's just that some of the gals are a little smarter to come in than some of these guys that have guts hanging down to their toes and they don't come in. They won't, you know, they, they don't or won't come in. I just don't understand that. But every time I ever had a diet that came home with me from a doctor was pink. So when I went to my first nutritionist, I noticed in the, um, office of the nutritionist that the envelopes that they put your food plan in were pink. And I said, for the love of God, come on, I am, come on, don't, don't assume that we're all females. And she said to me, she says, you're the only male patient I have. I says, well, come on, get off of it now. All right. Anyway, you will soon have your friends admitting he has many, if not all the traits of the alcoholic. There's only two traits. There's other factors, but the two traits are the physical allergy and the twist of the mind. If his own doctor is willing to tell him that he is alcoholic, so much the better. Even though your protege may not have entirely admitted his condition, he has become very curious to know how you got well. Let him ask you that question. If a doctor tells you that you're a compulsive overeater, that's not going to be very effective. You have to tell yourself. There's really only one voice that humans listen to, their own. You have to be led to that conclusion. When your voice tells you that the information that's coming in through your ears and or eyes is accurate, then you make that decision and you will rely on that information. However, until that happens, you are probably not going to be convinced of anything because until you come to the conclusion that you need help, you won't seek help. How many of us languished for years, years needing help and absolutely refusing to get it? How absurd was that? How absurd was that? So we have a situation where Mr. Ego or Miss Ego gets in the way. We're at the top of 93. Tell him exactly what happened to you. Tell him your story. Stress the spiritual feature freely. 
if the man be agnostic or atheist, make it emphatic that he does not have to agree with your conception of God. He can choose any conception he likes, provided it makes sense to him. The main thing is that he be willing to believe in a power greater than himself and that he live by spiritual principles. I am a religion that is different from most of you, I'm going to go out on a limb and say. My religion is a very, very uh, minority religion in this country. And I mean, even in Israel, there are many Arabs and Christians that live in Israel. Many, well, I don't know that it, the Jews are a minority there, but there's there's all kinds of people in this world. You don't have to be the same religion as me. I don't think I sponsor more than two or three of the people I sponsor that are my religion. They are all different religions. It's not a factor. It doesn't come up. I don't care. They don't care. We're just here to recover. And it says in, in chapter four, do you believe or are you willing to believe that there is a power greater than yourself? And in keeping what I what I said about the book, it says here in page 93, the main thing is that he'd be willing to believe in a power greater than himself and that he lived by spiritual principles. All you have to be willing to believe, you don't even have to believe it. Is there a power greater than you? If you believe that there is a power greater than you, you're on your way. What are you worried about? I don't care if you're a Christian or you're Muslim or you're Buddhist or you're Baha'i or you're whatever you are, or what, a Catholic or what. I don't care. All that is required here is that you be willing to believe that there is a power greater than yourself. And if you're not willing to believe that, then there's not much I can do for you. Not much anybody can do for you. But seriously speaking, are you the be all and the end all of the world? Did you create puppies and babies? And did you create rainbows and mountains and streams? And that really, did, was that you? Was that you? So you, if you do, all you have to be is willing to believe there's a power greater than you. That's all. When dealing with such a person, you had better use everyday language to describe spiritual principles. There's no use arousing any prejudice he may have against certain theological terms and conceptions about which he may already be confused. Don't raise such issues, no matter what your own convictions are. We're not here to be rabbis, priests, ministers, deacons, inmans. We're not here for that. We're here to recover. We're here to help people recover. Your prospect may belong to a religious denomination. His religious education and training may be far superior to yours. In that case, he is going to wonder how you can add anything to what he already knows, but he will be curious to learn why his own convictions have not worked and why yours seem to work so well. He may be an example of the truth that faith, faith alone is insufficient. To be vital, faith must be accompanied by self-sacrifice and unselfish constructive action. This is not a program for people who need it. It is not a program for people who want it. This is a program for people who do it. I don't give a damn what you believe. Just take the action. I'm not an expert in exercise physiology. But six days a week, I get my tuchus out there and I walk three miles. It helps a lot. Do I know all the biology and chemistry of what's going on when I'm walking? Heck no. Let him see that you are not there to instruct him in religion. Admit that he probably knows more about it than you do, but call to his attention the fact that however deep his faith and knowledge, he could not have applied it or he would not drink. Perhaps your story will tell him will help him see where he has failed to practice the very precepts he knows so well. We represent no particular faith or denomination. We are dealing only with general principles common to most denominations. If you really boil any religion down, any that I know of, maybe some that I don't know about, you'll find that they are more the same than different. A rabbi thousands of years ago, thousands of years ago in Poland was asked to boil Judaism down to a few sentences. And this was his response. 
we should treat others as we want to be treated. Now, I don't know of any religion that gets too far away from that. And no matter what the situation is, we're going to be called upon to serve God. This is the best way I know to recover, and that is to sponsor. We're going to be talking more about this in the weeks to come. I want to encourage every one of you to go through the steps quickly, whether you are the sponsor or the sponsored. This does not have to be a college course. It does not have to be uh, recovery 425. It has to be quick. You've got the rest of your life to study all kinds of things about recovery, but you will learn it by teaching this to others. You have been given a gift, and the gift that you have been given is the clear understanding of the language of the heart. The gift that you have been given is the torturous pain that your life has exemplified, the, the hell that you have gone through, the hell that you have gone through qualifies you very uniquely to be a messenger of God's word as it appears in the big book. Now, I am doing special edition tomorrow. I hope that some of you will tune in. And you will hear somebody ask me the question. I guarantee it. I've got this person in my life. What do I do? And you'll know the answer before I give it. It's recover, recover, and recover. Okay, I'm going to turn it back to Audrey and Audrey or Sue or somebody.